You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 293. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey son, hey son! Wow, we have Andras back! What's Woo-hoo! the occasion, yeah. Andras? Andras back! Well, All right! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that's cool. Uh, well, isn't isn't that something that feels like I'm missing almost every episode by now? Well, every other, maybe, yeah. Yeah, but I do feel very sorry about that. And I, I apologies to you and our listeners as well. I'm, although, since you're doing an amazing job at uh, delivering the episodes <laughs> weekly, I don't think I miss that much, but I love doing it. It's just that I can't. Yeah, and you're with us in spirit, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> I consume a lot of spirits just to be with you. Oh no, oh, oh, you're so not nice if you think. Oh, not what you were referring to. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> oh, but guys, I just have to tell you, it's not. Well, I don't like explaining myself in a way, just for everyone to understand. When tourism just died off as a result of of COVID and lockdowns and everything, I had to look for something else to do. And all I could think of was tutoring online. Since I was trained as a teacher, well, that was obvious, right? An obvious choice. But now I have all the students and now I had tourism resumed for at least a little while. And I've done five tours abroad since uh, the beginning of this year, so it's it's not that crazy yet. But when you consider the fact that I have the two together, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wh- whenever I'm traveling, I can't do anything apart from being with my group and taking care of everything. And uh, when I'm home, all those days are spent tutoring students. And in the meantime, I'm trying to run the organization, uh, the Hungarian Skeptics. So I'm really, first of all, Pontus, I can't tell you how grateful I am for you taking over the editing of the show. You've done it for a long time. It was my turn now, I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have to tell you something that's related to my experience as of late with traveling with people. Guys, the world has gone completely crazy. (laughs) Instead of feeling like a traveling tour director and guide that I usually felt like back in the day, I feel like a kindergarten teacher, like <laughs> like um, in a nursery. People are so <laughs> incapable, or at least some people in the groups, of taking care of themselves that I really feel like there has been a shift towards complete infantilism in society, especially in the elderly. Well, they have grown older since you had them last time. So. <laughs> yes, and I, I tried to look for a, a scientific background of that, and I was looking for articles published on how the well-being and the mental issues could change because of COVID. And there have been a couple of articles published. Uh, so, so science is working on this. <laughs> so I'm actually not just making it up myself. And I'm not the only person at the company taking notice of that. So obviously, as a skeptic, my first reaction was, could it be that I have changed? So it's something that comes from my mind, that my mind shifted towards something different. But actually, it's not. The people from the group, the the normal kind of people, (laughs) come up to me asking if it's them or something has really changed with people. So uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And that means 
a whole lot more work for me because I basically have to take care of them like little children. <laughs> wow. It's amazing. I can imagine. Like I, I went on a class trip with like five graders once mm -hmm. and it was so much work. So I can imagine doing that, but with pe people who are older and thus also like stubborn. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I can imagine how hard that is. Yeah. You, just, just an example. <laughs> when you explain several times that so there is something that, that's called a green pass in Italy. And that's the EU-wide COVID pass that shows that you've been vaccinated twice at least. And I explained several times at the beginning of the tour that everywhere you go, take it with you, along with your personal identity card. Even if you go to the toilet, take it with you just in mm. case. Yeah. <laughs> and whenever the bus stops, people come up to me asking if the COVID pass needs to be taken. Do, do I take it with me? Of course you do. Come on. <laughs> and it happens every day, every stop, at every stop. It's amazing. Hmm. I mean, we joke around with those that, that it happens on occasion. And there there's always someone in the group who, be, who be, be behaves like that. But not this level. Not, yeah. not in such high numbers. Like half of the group behaves like that. It's, it's Is it because people are not used to traveling anymore? Could be, or people are not used to making decisions for themselves or not used to uh, listening to other people. I have no idea. So this is why I would love to see scientific evidence of what's going on. And if someone listening to this knows of such research, please let us know because I, I do want to know what's going on. Yeah. Mm. Or it's just me being much more sensitive to this. Mm. But uh, I believe that if this is a real phenomenon, this could have a profound effect on outcomes of certain elections, right? As well. Yeah, exactly. And there's just an election that happened a few days ago in Germany. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the results are in. It's pretty funny or interesting. Angela <laughs> Merkel's party got 24.1%, so roughly a quarter. The Social Democrats got 25.7%, so they were the strongest this time. Okay. Mm -hmm. but only like by about 1%. The Greens got 14%, the third strongest. Uh, the Liberals will have 11.5%. The right-wing party, AFD, 10.3%. Uh, the lefts, the lefties, <laughs> only got 4.9%, but they will still be in because they won in three uh, counties, and that means they can still hop in. Normally in Germany, we have a, a they call it a 5% clausel, so like a, yeah, a stop. Yeah, the same they, thing. Yeah, you can't be under 5%. You can't go in normally. Yeah. Interestingly enough, there will also be one seat uh, reserved for a minority party. They call uh, themselves SSW or Südschleswigsche Wählervereinigung. And it's like a minority group of Danes in Germany. <laughs> and because they're a minority, they don't have to reach any any stop, like any 5%. Oh, so they can just get in. one mandate. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise minorities could never get in. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 quite a good democratic feature, I think. Yeah. yeah. To have that. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Good. And yeah, what what will happen now is is pretty complicated. There can be several coalitions happening. Yeah. So they call it the traffic light coalition, which means the Greens, the Social Democrats and the Liberals. Like oh, red, yeah. so, red, green, so the yellow. Red, red, green, <laughs> red, yellow. Green. Nice. Okay. Um, could also be a Jamaica <laughs> coalition because black of CDU, <laughs> yellow and green, like the liberals and the greens. 
We don't know yet. Uh, we'll see. So I'll, I'll keep you guys and our listeners updated in that regard. Yeah. It took wow, a long okay. time the last time to, to get yes. a, 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 a government in. Yeah, in. they could also still do it like a big coalition, as they call it. So like CDU yeah, yeah. And, and the Social Democrats. Oh. But they don't really want to do that again. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, it did happen, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay, so what were the expectations of AFD? And compared to that, what did the results show? I mean, did they live up to, to the expectations or they, they surpassed them or what, what happened? So last time they were, were their third strongest. So they had like roughly about the same votes as the Greens at the last vote in 17. This time they only got 10.3, so they lost a few. Okay. That's, that's good news, isn't it? Yeah, that is definitely okay. good news. It's still interesting that like still every 10th person actually voted for them. Mm-hmm. It's a bit spooky. And they also won in several federal states. So um, mm-hmm. in Saxonia and in, in, in other few counties and, and federal countries, they won a lot. So I think, yeah, AFD wanted, of course, to have more. But I think that they just showed during COVID how competent or maybe not competent they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, yeah, the voters just chose differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's always difficult when you give the choice to the people who may be well-informed or may not be well-informed. Yeah, that's a yeah. tough call. Mm-hmm. And in, in Germany, we also, like, different to, for example, Australia, we have voluntary election. So mm-hmm. I think about 76, 77% of the Germans voted. Yeah. You can only have really good numbers if everyone everyone uh, votes, but mm-hmm. you can't yeah. really get that. <laughs> no, unless you make we, it we mandatory. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And we, we currently have something that's, that's like a pre-election because of the electoral system that Orban introduced back at the beginning of his current regime. Several different parties could not go against the big block of parties that uh, the governing parties represent. So the opposition has to be unified. And now they try to find the best candidates who can win against the governing party's candidates. And there are several different parties in the opposition block. And now they are giving the choice to the people. So that's the pre-election. Yeah. That's the pre-election. Uh-huh. So it's amazing. It, it's never been done before. And uh, it has its difficulties. It's not going very smoothly, but it's amazing to see it. I just voted today. So I'm really, really eager to find out who will represent, who will be the prime minister candidate, for example. There is one woman among them, and I would really love yeah. to see her go against Orban. She's good. <laughs> There's a lot of voting going on at the moment. There's been a couple of referendums as well that I'd just like to mention because there's good good news. And we mm-hmm. need that once in a while. Mm-hmm. So the first one is that uh, in Switzerland, they had a referendum and they approved a law that will make uh, same-sex marriages legal from July next year. So mm-hmm. that's progress. That's progress, people. And th- this law was actually taken by the parliament uh, already in December last year. But it was challenged by, I guess, mostly religious groups who felt that this was a threat to, quote, children and fathers, end quote. Whatever that Ooh. means. But <laughs> <laughs> not mothers, okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Mothers are probably not so important enough. But mothers yeah, are, who not, cares? are not lesbians. <laughs> <Who cares>? <laughs> <laughs> None of their concern, right? <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, lesbians, is, that's just sexy, but gay but men... But gays, they, that, they steal your children yeah, they steal from your the children. fathers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But coming back to that, threatening children, we know, of course, we who sit here, that children who, who grow up in same-sex homes do not do any worse than other children. In fact, in some studies, they show, are shown to do better. They will always be wanted. Mm. Yeah, that could be that. Could be that. Uh, it's hard to get children when you're a same-sex couple, obviously. Uh, so when you really oh, do by it... by accident, at least. <laughs> yeah, yes, right. <laughs> Yeah, no, but you have to make certain arrangements. It's easier yeah. for for others. Yeah, that's, yeah, but whole, that's yeah. what I mean. Like you can, like you will rarely have children that are that have been. Oh, an accident. I see what you mean. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so you, you so can. So it's, it's a whole new level of planned parenthood. Yeah. yeah, that that's right. There are no accidental pregnancies uh, yeah. in same-sex yeah, yeah. couples. No, that's true. That's right. And and then again, why fathers should be threatened by same-sex marriages? I have no idea. That's totally bonkers. And same-sex partnerships in Switzerland has been uh, legal since 2007, but that's not exactly the same, especially when it comes to getting children, if you adopt or by other means. Uh, Almost two-thirds was voting yes to this new law, so that's a solid win. Another win uh, is, uh, it's a small one, but it's a big one for them, I guess, the small state of San Marino. They voted regarding adoptions. And that was an even bigger win there. We were over 75% voting yes. And before this change, there was a total ban of uh, abortions. Uh, not even, no exceptions, not even for rape or incest. And it will now be allowed uh, up till 12 weeks, which is the same rules as in most of Europe. After 12 weeks, it is still allowed if it poses, if the pregnancy poses a, a risk for, for the mother physically or, or psychologically. Interesting. So Mm. San Marino is probably the most Catholic country in Europe or maybe the world because Mm. it was based on a a religious order back in, I think, in the 300s. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it Uh, has very old uh, roots and I think it's been reestablished a couple of times. But but since the Middle Ages, it Mm -hmm. has been a sovereign state, very small, based on very Catholic values. But now you can have an abortion. It's one of those states that remain sovereign. Yeah. And that's interesting because none, not many of them did the same. They joined the unification of, of Italy back in the day. But San Marino and the Vatican, they came, they, they stayed out of it. <laughs> yeah, the, the Vatican took a long, long time to establish because uh, at the 1861 Risorgimento, it was called, mm. it was not really clear what would happen to the Vatican City. No. And it took until 1929, the Lateran Treaty between Pope, I think it was Pius XI and uh, Mussolini, they cleared up the space and they said, okay, this is what belongs to the Vatican and this is what belongs to the Italian state and that's it. <laughs> but I'm not but sure about somebody know how it, how it Nobody cared. Down, I'm sure nobody yeah, yeah. cared. This may be apocryphal <clears throat> and, and a lie, so take this with a grain of salt. But I have heard that Sweden is still technically at war with San Marino because after the <laughs> war <laughs> in the 1600s, uh, you, do you call it the 30-year war in, in the rest of Europe? Or is it just... Yes, yeah, yes all right. the 1600s, yeah. Yes, and after that, when there was a peace treaty, they forgot about San Marino. So most countries in Europe is still <laughs> technically at war with San Marino. 
it, this could be wrong. Please send your emails for corrections to info at the ESP.eu. <laughs> but this is what I've heard, and it's funny anyway. Sounds a bit like Germany would still be at war with the US because we never signed a peace treaty. Oh, could be. Oh, yeah. Okay. But could they're be. not because <laughs> we kept, like, if you say we give up, we surrender, then you don't have to sign a peace treaty. So it's wrong. Yeah, okay. But people still say that. So <laughs> right. did, I don't did, think, did do that. I don't think do San Marino yeah. surrendered to the Swedes. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people really feared back in, in the day, I mean, in the 1600s during the 30-year war, feared Swedish armies. I mean, mm. those guys really hit some Central European cities very hard. I mean, oh, wow. Yeah, we were fierce in those days. Now we're more yeah. mellow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think you're Good still you. fierce. <laughs> Good for you, but you know what? You know what? I would like to see the world moving in that direction, and um, this is why I'm I'm really fond of ideas like uh, Star Trek. I probably have told you, but might be just in person, that I was asked to participate in a book to write a chapter in a book that will be titled Beyond Space Time. It's a Hungarian book. And it's going to be a, a part of a series that's called Fantasy and Science. And it's an amazing series. And I was I f- felt very honored to be asked to participate. But I did tell you about the talk that I gave at Hungarokon recently mm. about yes, Star Trek and how, yes. how the world of Star Trek, as an example, could lead to a better world. I think my participation to this book will be that particular topic. So I will give a couple of arguments with proper references, of course, so I will do my research, how following the example of the Star Trek universe could lead to a better world for humanity. Yeah. Looking forward to the Swedish version of that book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but enough of that chatter because we have a show to do (laughs) and (laughs) as usual, we need to start with This Week in Skepticism. Yes, and this week in skepticism, something really disastrous happened. Mm. Something, interestingly, that I don't remember because I was only four years old at that time. Mm-hmm. But when I said the name, my mom immediately and Scotty both were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we remember that. And what I'm talking about is the Estonia disaster on the 28th of mm-hmm. September 1994. Do you guys remember that? I, I do remember it very vividly, yes. Yeah, but you were close to the yeah. the place it happened. But uh, I wasn't. I only know about this because I do tours to Estonia and obviously it's a big thing in Tallinn. Mm. Yeah. And for everyone who is like as old as me and as not educated as me, <laughs> the Estonia was a ferry built in 1980 in Papenburg, Germany. And it sank on Wednesday, 28th of September, 1994, in the middle of the night. It was crossing the Baltic Sea from Tallinn, Estonia, to Stockholm, Sweden. There were 989 passengers on board, most of them Swedish or Estonian. It was already apparently leaning slightly towards the right because of a cargo distribution, but like nothing seemed to be wrong, so they just went for it. And they hit rough weather an autumn storm so it was something where they say like it's nothing out of the ordinary temperatures were around 10 degrees regular voyage time everything seemed fine and then in the middle of the night passengers heard a metallic bang inspection first inspection showed no problems but then a loading ramp was torn open and water flooded 
into the ship. There was an alarm sounded and the ship rapidly flooded and leaned towards the right. Powerful waves pretty much crashed through the whole ship and it was rapidly sinking. They sent a mayday at 1.22, lost power, so they couldn't really say where they were. Then got power again, could say where they were, but then sank at 1.50, so only half an hour after that. Then there was a rescue effort within the hour, emergency declared at 2.30 in the night, and most people actually died, and they died by drowning or hypothermia. And of the 989 passengers or people on board, it was like passengers and crew, there were 852 people dead and 137 survivors. So it's still the deadliest peacetime shipwreck we have, mm-hmm. or at least we know of. Most died by drowning and hypothermia because if you're in 10 degrees cold water, you like you your body minutes. will cool down. Yeah. And no survivors under the age of 12 were there. So no children survived that. And the survivors were mostly young males with strong constitutions. And you can imagine that like they will just have more stamina to survive that. The disaster had a major impact on ferry safety um, and life raft mm-hmm. designs. Interestingly, much as the Titanic did in 1912. Mm-hmm. So the wreck of the Titanic influenced design on uh, of life raft. And the same thing happened again with Estonia. Yeah. Speaking of the Titanic, I think you said that Estonia was the most deadly peacetime uh, shipwreck, but I think uh, the Titanic was yeah. worse. It was. Um, uh, yeah, like... I think it was within this, uh, the last five decades or so. Oh, okay, yeah. So okay. I, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot so, yeah. to, to add that. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and it's, it's interesting because like, I didn't remember that, but when I researched this, I had the images of the Titanic movie in my head. So you can, like, it's, it is very much like that. And interestingly, like, as I said, they think it was a loading ramp that got torn open. But of course, when the cause is not 100% proven, guess what will happen? There's Mm -hmm. a lot of conspiracies uh, here in Sweden, especially at the moment. There was a documentary uh, earlier this year, which was actually terrible. It's a terrible documentary because it's just full of we're just asking questions, full of logical fallacies and and just uh, feeding the conspiracy theories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they actually like they really prosper and bloom this conspiracy theories. Mm. There's, for example, the German journalist Jutta Rave who claims that there are traces of deliberate explosions, and that would be because the government intelligence would smuggle military hardware on the ferry, and the <laughs> members of the investigation commission denied that and uh, said like samples also don't prove any explosions. So that's of course rubbish. Mm. And as you already said, there was a Swedish uh, documentary last year in 2020 that actually prompted new investigation that came to the same conclusions. But uh, it's it's like, as I said, it's very, very much that conspiracy theories like really like disasters in a way. You can see that with COVID. You can see that with 9-11. Yeah, you can see it with, with the shipwreck of Estonia. But but you have to consider another factor here that it was a politically very fragile environment. I yes. mean, in 1991, the independence of Estonia was restored, but the last Russian troops left Estonia in 1993. Yeah, and that meant that they were just over that Soviet yeah. ruling, the, the 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 Soviet rule, and. Uh, 
they were hit very hard. The whole nation of Estonia was hit very hard. I mean, not not only Estonia, because there were lots of Swedish people perishing there as well. But uh, for Estonia, it was like a terrible event. It was like for many people in Estonia, at least as far as I know, it was like a symbolic event. It was like something that made them question the changes that were happening, that something, especially the ship's name was Estonia. So it was like a symbolic thing that the Estonia sank and a lot of people freaked out about it. And uh, in a way, it's understandable, psychologically speaking. Yeah, because you want to have a corporate. So yeah. I can I can totally yeah. understand that. It's I think we talked about that with with the case of COVID that it's just like it's easier to think that someone did it in a lab because then you yeah. can say like they are evil and then that's what happened. But you can see so many logical fallacies that Pontus already mentioned yeah. in these conspiracy theories like cherry picking, availability bias, confirmation bias. For example, people drew conclusions from individual data points. They saw another shipwreck that took a very very long time to sink and then were like, hmm. It so took very long to sink, and the Estonia didn't, so it must have been an like whatever a bomb okay. um, facilitated sinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah and <laughs> what were they thinking? Yeah, exactly. But shipwrecks always have unique conditions, like weather, storm, wind, uh, the the ship itself. So you can't draw conclusions mm. from individual things. Exactly. Sometimes it's also that people are not really interested in answers, but just want to ask questions. So, for example, the wreck got covered with concrete mats. And then the conspiracy theorists ask, why did they cover the wreck with concrete mats if they had nothing to hide? Oof. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just asking questions. Yeah, just asking <laughs> questions. So, and they will also have... Um, they they want to have an alternative explanation. They, they don't want to hear that it's mostly the result of inexperienced stress and incompetence. Like, for example, this covering of the wreck. And they will also use the reverse burden of proof, which means they will say, how do you know it's not an explosion? Can you prove that it's not an explosion? Of course, you, you can say we can't find traces, but you can't say 3000% it's not an explosion. But it's the totally reverse burden of proof. So, like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you can find all of these fallacies and more in a very interesting article that I also put into the show notes. It's in Swedish, but either you know Swedish or you <laughs> you can put it into Google Translate as I did. <laughs> so yeah, it's, you can see the conspiracy theories in there, and yeah. um, it's, it's interesting that it's it's uh, so much still a thing with with the documentary Pontus, right? Right. It's debated here all the time and it's not harmless. This is doing yes. a lot of harm to surviving family members who hear that there are something fishy and they are denying you the truth, etc. And it stirs up emotions that are very yes. easy to manipulate for people who are want who want to do documentaries or to yeah. create yeah. Uh, clickbaity things just to get uh, notoriety or things like that. Yeah, you te- you tear those wounds open, and and it shouldn't be happening. No, that's right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Annika. Thank you. Bit of a heavy topic, but it's it's important to talk about it. But, but it is. It is. It, it is, is indeed. As this article that we linked to Annika that you mentioned, it is a very good exercise in identifying logical fallacies. So you can learn mm-hmm. from this. Yeah. Exactly. More on logical fallacies later. Call forward. But before that, I would like to hear if uh, you have something to poke the Pope for, Pontus. 
Right, pretty short one this week, but uh, still interesting, I think. There's some sensational statements coming from Frankie again. We're getting used to him uh, talking a lot and saying things that can't be verified afterwards. When he was on his recent tour in Hungary, he also visited Slovakia. I think it was on the way back. And he chatted with the Jesuit brothers there. He is a Jesuit himself, so he usually does that when he goes abroad. The thing is that what he says is then transcribed. It's not recorded or transmitted, but it's transcribed and it comes public after a while. In this case, he apparently said that during his surgery this summer, we've heard a lot about this surgery. During this surgery, some people back in the Vatican, he said, were hoping for him not to make it uh, through the procedure. So he's either uh, paranoid or there are actually people wanting him to die. Actually, that's a false dichotomy, come to think of it, because just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people don't want to harm you. So that's right. But that's right. Yeah. That aside, that aside, anyway, he said also that there was a meeting at the time in the Vatican during his hospitalization to start preparing for the next conclave in case he would die. The conclave, of course, is where you, well, where the cardinals meet and to elect a new pope. Uh, the, the interesting thing is that, well, there are several things here. The first thing is that, again, we hear that his surgery apparently was more serious than we heard about it at the time because mm-hmm. there were fear that he wouldn't survive it. But then the next interesting thing is that the Secretary of State in the Vatican, the second in command, if you will, uh, Cardinal Pietro Parolin, he denied that such a meeting ever took place. He was not aware of any meeting to plan a new conclave, and you would think he would know. So that's very unusual that the the Secretary of State contradicts the Pope. And uh, again, we wonder either the Secretary of State is hiding something, or Frankie is starting to imagine things. And as he is getting older, this may be a sign that he is starting to lose it, frankly. Well, I don't know if he talks regularly to God. Uh, God is all-knowing and all-powerful, so he he might be giving some hints to him right. uh, as so, to what other people are planning. So uh, the Secretary of State, the second in command in the Vatican, doesn't talk to God then? Well, isn't that the privilege of the of the Pope? I uh, mean, do but uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. I'm not. It's messy. I'm not very. I don't know the rules yeah. for this. Yeah, it's it's a mess. Yeah, yeah. But it's strange <laughs> okay. when they start to contradict each other because that's not very common at all. Yeah, especially when you base your whole kingdom on the doctrine and you start contradicting each other. That's 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 funny. That's yeah, and, and one part of the doctrine is that the Pope is infallible, so... <laughs> it is, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, he now is. Now we're well, uh, starting well, to wonder. But okay, isn't it yeah. also strange that uh, Francis is talking to people that... I mean, they're fellow Jesuits, but not his immediate friends, I believe. And he's saying, well, you know, back home, they want me dead. Yeah. I, I know, even if it's true, why would he say that? Yes, it is strange, yeah. Anyway. It sounds a little like whining as well. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah those, those bastards want me dead. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough about Francis this week. I think we'll save other stories for later. One more thing to add. Mm-hmm. If those people who want him dead do really want him dead and they succeed in, well, achieving that goal, <laughs> that's the will of God, right? 
yeah, I don't think you should take religious advice from, from this <laughs> podcast or any other advice for that matter. No, but I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah, Come on. Don't try to make this logical and rational. <laughs> okay. That won't work. All right. That's a good advice, I think. <laughs> I will take it. And that leaves us with nothing else but the news. So, right, people are always looking for a quick fix, but uh, this must be one of the other ones. Snus, I don't know what if you know what that is, but it is tobacco, very popular in Sweden and actually banned in most of Europe. Traditional snus, S-N-U-S. Is it something you put in your nose normally? No, that's snuff. That's very, ah. very close to it. But snus, <laughs> okay. you actually put in your mouth. You put it ah, uh, okay. under your uh, your upper lip. And it's it, the traditional snus is uh, is a bit moist, and you you massage it with your fingers to you make a little pillow out of it, and you put it under your upper lip, and apparently that's some sort of pleasure involved in that. I don't know. Uh, you get the nicotine, <laughs> I guess, and and there's a taste, of course, as well. And uh, nowadays that's a bit messy. So nowadays you usually or more, more commonly uh, people buy small pouches of snus small paper pouches that you put uh, it's easier and not so messy like a chewing gum <laughs> yeah almost it, it's a little bit more uh, civilized if you will <laughs> <laughs> and as, as it, it's, it contains nicotine you get some sort of high or nicotine high anyway and of course it is addictive because nicotine is addictive to use snus is said to be uh, more safe than smoking because it doesn't give you lung cancer but then again in some cases, it can lead to cancer in your lip or in the gum. So that's snus. But youngsters in Denmark, and also I hear in Norway, have found a new use for these little pouches. And this is crazy. Bear with me and trigger warnings and everything. <laughs> it seems to have started... <laughs> you have to say for what trigger warning? Well, uh, well, it's a bit gross. It's a bit gross. <laughs> it seems to have started when teachers were trying to ban snooze from being used in the classroom because it was messy. People were throwing uh, their small boxes around and, and, and they were making a mess. But some young genius figured out that if you instead put the pouch up your bum, the teacher <laughs> wouldn't know about it, but you would still get the nicotine high of it. And of oh, course, wow. this spread around. Being young and curious... Uh, and stu stupid. Uh, stupid. <laughs> mm -hmm. People or students started experimenting with putting snus in other places as well of the body. So how about under the foreskin of the penis? Uh, <laughs> one guy <laughs> is said to have done this while being pretty drunk one evening and he forgot about it. And then he woke up in the morning um, with a very swollen and red and hurting penis. <laughs> and, <No>. and so... <laughs> This is more more stupid than dangerous, but it is a bit dangerous too. I mean, if it can give you cancer in the lip, it can probably give you cancer in other places too. Yeah, don't put it on your penis. Yeah, but no. what I'm waiting for, what I'm waiting for, what we're all waiting for, I think, is that some nut job who wants to make money will start to touting this as some sort of cure. I mean, if yeah. you can sell coffee enemas, oh, yeah, yeah, why yeah, yeah, not yeah, yeah. snooze? Yeah. Up your yeah. ass. Seriously. Yeah. Oh, well, well. You know what this reminds me of? <laughs> no, I'm afraid um, to ask, actually. 
Well, um, well, there was uh, like an almost similar trend in Germany. Um, it was only going among girls or young women who wanted to get drunk. And mm. they couldn't smuggle in alcohol. I think it was like around concerts or so. They couldn't smuggle in alcohol. So what they did was that they soaked tampons in vodka oh, and then put it God. in. And you get drunk so quickly because it's like mucus area. Yeah, it absorbs and pretty quickly. It absorbs quickly, yeah. And it's also like almost impossible to fight. So yeah. if, if you're like already like if you're drunk. intoxicated, no, yeah, yeah, if you're like completely drunk, the doctor in, in the hospital won't be, oh, let's check uh, where tampons go, no. you know? Right. So yeah. it's, yeah, that uh -huh. was, oh, well, yeah, it's like young people, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 But at least we haven't seen that as a suggested cure for anything yet. Yeah, true. But we have vagina eggs, so... <laughs> yeah, vagina eggs, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Don't tell Gwyneth Paltrow about this. <laughs> yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow, yeah. <laughs> she will market it right away. Probably already selling it. Maybe it oh, was yeah. her idea. Yeah. Mm, probably, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> at least she's not selling bogus rituals, right? Exorcism, mm -hmm. right? This might be something that we just have to wait for. <laughs> but um, there was a doctor who recently got jailed for such a thing by the Sheffield Crown Court. You you might have heard of this. Uh, the guy's name was uh, Hossam Metwelly. He decided to offer exorcism. And he, he, he was, by the way, an actual doctor, an anesthetist at the NHS. So there was an eight-week long trial, and the whole trial started when um, Matt Welly and his practices led to a young woman named Kelly Wilson to almost die. Yeah. Because of, uh, well, she fell into a coma, and mm -hmm. that was back in July the 4th, uh, 2019. As she was, according to BBC, on the brink of a cardiac arrest. And when they took her to hospital, she had multiple organ failures. That was all done by an anesthetist. So he knew exactly what was going on. But the problem was, uh, well, that, that was a problem in itself. But turned out that he convinced this young poor woman that she was possessed by demons and he performed exorcism rituals on her while she was drugged on many occasions. And those exorcism rituals included reading up verses of the Quran. Of the Quran? Don't ask me why, specific the Quran. Yes, exactly. So that was all bogus. Luckily, he got caught and uh, young Kelly Wilson was brought back to life normally. I don't know how well she's doing at the moment, but uh, he was found guilty. So mm -hmm. Manuel was guilty of eight charges of uh, fraud and, of course, administering a nauseous substance that caused potential danger that was life-threatening to yeah. the woman. And he pleaded guilty of voyeurism as well. So he oh. was peeping on people as well. Right. Uh, yeah. From with a hidden camera while they were changing in his private clinic. Where wow. we, which, which he But maybe, maybe his defense is that he was possessed by the devil. And the devil made him do it. Yeah. No, no, no. Apparently, he was he was not pleading that. And he was not trying to, well, get off the hook with that. But he performed more than 250 rituals. And he was making recordings of the idiot oh, uh, of, of the whole thing. Some people involved in the case really got mad. And, and they really 
called it what it was, that it was a bogus sham religious series of acts. And he was a fanatic and he was he was not in his right mind. Luckily, it was not the basis of the le- the legal defense that he was not in his right mind. So he got 14 and a half years in prison. Wow. And no, I good. think it's very well deserved. Mm. That's exactly what a guy like that needs to get. <laughs> yes. So, but then I, I read an article on the conversation about that. So on the occasion of Hossam Matwelli's sentence announced, they bring up an, a very interesting issue. And that is that domestic abuse is something very common and in many cases probably more cases that we think of it is covered by something like this like it's communicated as something like uh, an exorcism case yeah but it's basically just outright domestic abuse and this is what was happening with this guy as well because poor kelly was supposed to be his girlfriend yeah that's this just this makes it probably even more terrible. Yeah, it does. Something that's also pretty terrible, but maybe also helpful, we'll see in the end of, uh, of my hmm. report here, is mesotherapy. <laughs> and, what um, is that? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. Mesotherapy is a treatment where fine needles are injected into the middle layer of the skin, so the mesoderm, Ah, And that's why it's called mesotherapy. Mm -hmm. The needles are used to inject vitamins, enzymes, hormones, plant extracts, etc. into the skin of a patient. Whatever you have at home, you can do that. Exactly. It was invented by Michel Pistor, or pronounced differently. Um, You know (laughs) what to do, dear listeners. (laughs) (laughs) He developed the therapy in 1952 as a pain relief. But, and here you can see, if you have a too wide area for usage, it's usually scam. It's also used to remove fat, reduce cellulitis, to fade wrinkles, to tighten loose skin, to tone and contour the body, to lighten pigmented skin, and to treat alopecia. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And a little bit of racism in there. You want to have a lighter skin. Exactly. Nobody ever invented a method to get a darker skin. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah. Well, uh, sunbathing is is all that. It's all about that. Um, Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's said to deliver drugs into the middle layer, as I already said, of the skin. It's meant to correct underlying issues like poor circulation and inflammation of the skin. Some more drugs they also use are prescription medicine like antibiotics, hormones like tyroxine, enzymes, herbal extracts, homeopathic remedies, vitamins and minerals, but sometimes also vaccines. And now comes the big question that we should also always ask, is there any evidence? Mm-hmm. So that it works, that it's effective. There's a recent study, and the recent study found out that the effectiveness is actually unproven, but it can have serious adverse effects like infections, scarring, allergic reactions, and so on, because there is something put into your skin, like a herbal remedy or a homeopathic remedy, and it's also really expensive. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, mesotherapy is definitely something that Edzard Ernst, our good friend, wouldn't recommend. Yeah, as you know, you don't take medical advice from this podcast, but it's something that I probably also wouldn't condone. <laughs> and the, the other thing is that the person who was who invented this yeah. did not know what they were talking about. So mesoderm is not even related to skin. It's a germ layer. 
it's it's mm-hmm. in the in the embryonic developmental stage that you can talk about a mesoderm so an ectoderm a mesoderm and an endoderm and when you're talking about the skin uh, the skin layers are completely different so the middle part of the skin is called the dermis it's yeah. not it's probably something that someone heard the word derm and the dermatology is the yeah. science of the skin, of course, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not the same thing. Yeah. So uh, these are two different things, and it's a classical case of people misunderstanding the words that they hear, and that they they think the sound scientific. It's like astronomy and astrology. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So yeah. Yeah. So don't try that. No. At least no. not until it's been scientifically proven. You can, you can proven. have a tattoo if you want to. Just mm. use needles with color. So. <laughs> also not a recommendation from this podcast. No, you, no. you make up your mind on your own and, and take <laughs> advice from others. Exactly. Be skeptical. <laughs> right. I think we have talked now for a long time and we haven't mentioned COVID once. Good. So I think I, I will did. bring... <laughs> Sorry. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, I, I mentioned it when I talked about disasters. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Anyway, I will bring it up now because we are now debating how to get vaccine-hesitant people out there to become immunized. Uh, And it's high time also we look not just at the general public, but how about health personnel? Believe it or not, there is a resistance even among some nurses, ambulance drivers uh, and others, even doctors. To me, I think it it should be a no-brainer that your healthcare worker is vaccinated, but apparently not. And uh, some politicians in the health region of Stockholm are now raising the question whether they should, they think that they should be able to fire healthcare workers if they refuse the vaccine. Uh, The question, though, is if they have a legal right to do so. Healthcare professionals, it should be obvious that they should be taking the vaccine. I mean, who should take it if not them? Yes. (laughs) Have you heard some similar discussions in like Hungary, Germany? Uh, yes, yes, but uh, now because we are preparing for elections, the Hungarian government is not forcing anything on people. Yeah, no, no, right. Yeah, I, I, I actually put this question to my son. He's he's seventeen, and he said, "Well, Dad, you know, there's a question of personal freedom, but no, they should not be able to work if they don't get the vaccine." Yeah. <laughs> that's what he said. It took him took him five seconds to figure out that that was stupid. No, actually, sorry, sorry. Actually, I was I was not giving you the right information because huh? there are plans to make it mandatory for healthcare workers, but there is a public outcry against it, and uh, it's a, a delicate issue right now. Uh, it it is. I mean, it is about personal freedom. But if your personal freedom creates a hazard for other people, then right. I think it's a no brainer. You okay? Then you're free not to take the vaccine, but then. I'm sorry, you can't work with sick people anymore. And it's not just sick people. I I think if you have any job where you constantly meet a lot of people, random people, if you will, like like if you teachers, yes, bus drivers, taxi drivers, hotel personnel, shouldn't you be able to say to them that, I'm sorry, you, you, you may choose not to take the vaccine if you don't want to, you can't work here anymore. Yeah. Because we can't endanger the public because of your choice correct yeah so no discussion but it still is a discussion and uh, then there's a question whether you can actually make such a law in sweden at at least 
without breaking the fundamental law because the freedom of the individual is very much i'm not a lawyer so i don't know exactly but apparently there are very and they should be very strong protection of your personal freedom in i wouldn't call it a constitution for technically it's not a constitution but the fundamental laws of sweden has a lot of those protections so then it becomes a legal problem how do you make such a rule without breaking the fundamental law? yeah 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 we did consult uh, on a couple of occasions uh with legal experts because that came up when the vaccination started and all that the question of basic human rights And the legal experts said that the basic human rights include the right to live. And anyone's right to live is stronger than anyone's right to do not go vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, the right to choose, the right to decide for yourself is very strong, but it cannot be stronger than someone else's right to live. Yeah, yeah and, and people can't get vaccinated. There are people that just can't, you know, and... Yeah, that's right. There, that's there right. are there are very small percentage, or probably less than a percent of of uh, the population that cannot be. Uh, yeah, but vaccinated. we can't make the decision for but, them to be like, oh yeah, and it's not important no. that you live. So no, no, no. Yeah, sorry, yeah. if you if you have a medical condition that says you yeah. can't get vaccinated, that's fine. I'm not going to yeah. force that. But if you can get vaccinated and you choose not to, I still yeah. think you should be able to choose not to, but there will be consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're fine, but then you're a hazard to your environment mm. and we will restrict certain things that you cannot do. Sorry, what I meant was I didn't mean like, oh, don't get vaccinated because like <laughs> what I meant was like, more people have to get vaccinated to cover with like with herd immunity to cover yeah. those yes. that can't <laughs> that's right that's right because to provide them that's with what the i mean as well yeah. if the the number of people who can't get vaccinated it's so small that it's not a problem if everybody else gets vaccinated if, yeah. they don't have to and, yeah. and that's fine exactly yeah. exactly All right. So, but but whenever there's a public opinion and there's an argument going on in the public uh, dom on the public domain, there's always a lot of logical fallacies involved as well, right? So this is mm -hmm. why a lot of skeptical organizations do find it their job to explain logical fallacies. The ARP SAPC, the uh, Society for the Advancement of Critical Thinking in Spain, they do a very good job at doing that. They have a series of graphically explained logical fallacies, obviously in Spanish, but they have had it for a while in English as well. But now, recently, a couple of days ago, they published the Italian version of the same thing. Ooh. So it's amazing that a Spanish organization does it in three different languages. And this is amazing. I always come up with the same thing whenever I come across a project like this. Translation, guys. If yes. you have people to translate such a thing, then do approach the organization. If you don't know how to approach the Spanish Society for the, Advance, uh, for the Advancement of Critical Thinking, get in touch with us and we will make the connection for you. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that they won't tell you not to work with it, just reference them properly. And uh, But I'm not the one to make that decision, so do get in touch with them. And if you want to work with the English English version and want to translate it into to your own language, it's amazing. And it's always easier to work with already existing material and translate it than to come up with something completely new. So 
that's one thing. And uh, now that I'm, I'm already praising the Society for the Advancement of Critical Thinking in Spain, they held a conference a couple of days ago, a congress, on the 11th of September on, obviously, conspiracy theories. And, good news, if you understand Spanish, you have now all the talks available on their YouTube channel, and the link will be made uh, available as well on our website. Go check it out. Check it out. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the part where we hopefully find out who's been really wrong or really right. Right, so France managed to get rid of the public funding for homeopathy last year. But that doesn't mean that alternative medicine doesn't thrive in the country. Homeopathy is still popular, even if you have to pay for it yourself. And so is healing, ma magnetic therapies of different kinds, and other scam. Scam, of course, being a so-called alternative medicine, in the words of Edzard Ernst. <laughs> Edzard Ernst, uh, we've already mentioned him once this uh, show, um, and we often refer to him. He is spending a lot of his time nowadays in France, and he has written a piece about osteopathy in France, and uh, he did that in the UK online magazine The Skeptic, and we will link to the article in the show notes. So osteopathy is a little bit of an odd bird, actually. It's an offshoot of chiropractic, And chiropractic was developed, or rather invented, out of nothing, by D.D. Palmer in 1895. A few years later, osteopathy was dreamed up by Andrew Taylor Still, and it proposed the existence of a myofacial continuity, quote-unquote, which was <laughs> supposed to be a tissue layer that, quote, links every part of the body with every other part, end quote. That's fine. <laughs> so he just invented a full new organ. Okay. <laughs> so osteopaths, they, they attempt to diagnose and treat what was originally called, quote, the osteopathic lesion, end quote, by manipulating the muscles and the bones, basically stretching and pulling uh, your back and your legs and, and more. And there's no science behind this, people. It was just invented or dreamed <laughs> up. There is a notion in osteopathy about something called the lymphatic pump, which is something, apparently, that makes the lymph in your body flow. I guess mm. like uh, the heart does, a little bit with blood. <laughs> Spoiler, that's another organ that doesn't exist in the body. <laughs> I've heard people claim... Yeah, it's wolves, actually. Yeah. I've heard people claim that they can feel, uh, that osteopaths can feel the pulse of the spinal fluid with their hands, even though this pulse cannot be detected by any instrument. Because it's not pulsating. <laughs> yeah, you would think, but that person who told me this took it as an evidence of how skilled the osteopaths are, because they are so well trained that they can feel it better than any instrument. <laughs> right? Yeah. There you go. Nice. Very impressive. Uh -huh. The Wikipedia article about osteopathy says that it's mostly used for lower back pain and muscle ache, but that's not actually true. Osteopaths tout this scam for everything, even for perfectly healthy people, believe it or not, because they say it prevents you from getting ill. Try to prove mm -hmm. that. <laughs> Any anyway, back to France now. Uh, the thing with osteopathy in France is that it's on the rise. 
The breakthrough came so late as in 2002 when osteopathy received legislative recognition. And today it's booming. Between 2016 and 2018, 3,589 osteopaths were trained in France. In France, osteopaths can qualify with a doctorate in osteopathic medicine, a DO, DO, <laughs> and uh, become, <laughs> they can become osteopathic yeah, but... doctors, osteopathic physiotherapists, osteopathic nurses, osteopathic midwives, osteopathic chiropodists, which is apparently something to do with the feet, or even osteopathic dentists. Now that sounds interesting. Yeah, how you how do you pull somebody's arm or back to get rid of uh, a hole in your teeth? I don't know. Anyway, just, uh, the the whole lower jaw. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just dis- dislocate the whole lower jaw and then put it back, and it feels better. I guess it's amazing. So the number of professionals using the title of osteopath has tripled from 2010 to 2018 to almost 30,000 people in France. There are around 30 osteopathic schools and um, an estimated three out of every five French people now consult osteopaths. So that's more than half the population. I bring this up because this is a school example of what happens when the government decides to officially register a certain BS therapy. And ostensibly it's to regulate it and to control it. But what happens is instead that the registration itself is perceived by the public as an official endorsement of it. Uh, And since public health system hands out registrations, it must work, right? So that's, Mm -hmm. that's how it works. So don't do that, people. So osteopathy is nonsense. And uh, you shouldn't pay somebody to do anything osteopathic to you. You shouldn't take the training courses in France to become a a dope or something else. (laughs) (laughs) Just leave it alone. And for lending false legitimacy to a bogus nonsense scam, the French authorities get today's prize for being really wrong. Well deserved. Yes, agreed. All right, well, okay. But that brings us to the end of the show. However, before we leave, we need to give you, dear listeners, a quote. And many of us uh, in the skeptical movement do like or even love Doctor Who, right? Doctor Who. And there are many, (laughs) many (laughs) avid followers and even fans of Doctor Who. So a lot of our listeners will know that Tom Baker was... The fourth Doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know that, but I can read the script, so I know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and on, I, I don't remember, probably, there there probably will be a couple of our listeners who, who will know exactly which episode it was uh, said on. What was said <laughs> is, you know, the very powerful and the very stupid have one thing in common. They don't alter their views to fit the facts. They alter the facts to feed their views. Ah, oh, right. Works really <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> That's right. And uh, my call, we know you already knew, so you don't have to send in your uh, <laughs> email to, to confirm that you knew what episode it was. We trust you. <laughs> yeah. Why on earth did I have Mike on my mind when I when I said that out loud? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure he's listening, though. But if you are, Mike, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> 
By the way, Mike Hall is the host of Skeptics with a K, which is an amazing podcast for, uh, by the Merseyside Skeptics. Yeah, we haven't had Mike on the show. We've had Marsh, his co-host, a couple of times, and we've had Alice as well. But uh, Mike, yeah. All right. you should come on the show. Yeah, you should. This is your formal invitation. Okay, and with that, <laughs> we conclude the show. And I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Or more like allowing me to join you <laughs> as of late. <laughs> I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe <laughs> Hey, Luna Legislative 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 recognition 